the week of the budget and the spending review, which means we're about to find out the Tories' plan for the British economy for the next three years. We'll be giving immediate reaction to the full contents of those documents on Wednesday. Today, for something different, we're speaking to the man who, in an alternative, better universe, would be delivering his third budget, former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. We'll also discuss overflowing sewage, Tory threats to the BBC, a unique solution to the HGV crisis, and more from ITV's real-life Alan Partridge. As ever throughout the show, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm good. I'm a bit jealous that John McDonnell gets, you know, the man who would be Chancellor of the Exchequer, and I get overflowing sewage. (laughs) Do subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Hit the like button, and we want to know what you think. So do tweet your comments on the hashtag TiskySour, We'll put them in the comments box. This week, Rishi Sunak will deliver an autumn budget and a three-year spending review. It's all set to be a crucial moment for a government with a big spending prime minister and a fiscally conservative chancellor. All eyes are on whose predilections will come out on top. Of course, we'll have to wait until Wednesday for the full answer to that question, but we have already been given some previews as to what will be included in Sunak's speech. Today, it was revealed that the minimum wage is set to rise from 8.91 to 9.50. That's for all over 23s. That there is 5.9 billion pounds being allocated to the NHS for to cut waiting lists. That's going to be especially for for diagnostic tests and AI and IT technologies. There'll be 6.9 billion pounds to upgrade local transport links and 3 billion pounds to fund a skills revolution in high value sectors such as AI again, cybersecurity and nuclear. So do these spending pledges show Boris Johnson has won out in a battle over public spending or is Rishi Sunak just front-loading some good news before he delivers the bad? To find out, I'm joined by former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Good to see you. Um, First of all, what's your verdict on on what's been announced so far on the briefings that we've had today? We've got to get away from this phrasing or setting the scene by the Tories, this idea that you've got a high-spending Boris Johnson as against um, Rishi Sunak trying to control this rampant prime minister who wants to spend so much. People need to think through and put this in the context of what they've done to us over the last 11 years with austerity. And then when you compare what the announcements so far are, and then maybe it'll be more on Wednesday, I'm sure there's some surprises to come. But what we've been offered so far is trivial. So I think the, uh, the idea of framing it in that way between this high-spending prime minister and parsimonious chancellor is the, completely the wrong way to approach it. What we've got is a Tory government that, yes, is having been forced to spend some money associated with some of the promises that they gave in the last election, but they are trivial amounts in comparison with what's gone on. I'll just give you one example. My background, as you know, is from local government in the past. Local councils have lost since 2010 when austerity started, 100 billion, 100 billion. What drove me to anger at the weekend when I saw Rishi Sunak saying that he was going to open 78 family hubs, which actually look exactly like sure start centres. We've lost 1,300 sure start centres. They've They closed three in my constituency. So literally, if you go through each of the figures announced so far, it's relatively trivial. And often it's just stuff they've announced already. He announced announced the argument is about seven billion in new transport and infrastructure investment the weekend. Then the first question he was asked, I think by Trevor Phillips, actually, uh, how much is that new money? He had to admit it's only about one and a half billion. So We've got to stop framing it in that way. And I think we mustn't let them off the hook of what they've done to our society over the last 11 years as a result of austerity. And in that way, when you look at what they're promising, it is, it's trivial. In fact, it's an insult to people's intelligence, the way that they're, they're posing at the moment. I think Kevin Collins, when he suggested 11 billion or so for education, the reports were that Boris Johnson was saying, go for it. And then Rishi Sunak was like, no, I'm an ideological neoliberal. We're not going to do this. You, you don't think that's going on at all behind the scenes? There might, there's bound to be an element of that. Johnson just wants to get re-elected next time round. 
than Lee having won again because for him politics is a game. It's not an ideology or or a mission or it's not a vocation in any way. It's a game. So he wants to win at things. He wanted to defeat Cameron. That's why he went on the Brexit tack. That's why he won the election. He wanted to win the next election and saunter off and make large amounts of money or as much as he possibly can for the future. That's what he's about. There's there's nothing there's no to be honest, there's no side to Boris Johnson. You can see through him fairly obviously. So to win the next election, he thinks you've got to splash a bit of money, and that's why he'll want to argue Rishi Sunak. Sunak is much more ideological Thatcherite, who believes, I think he does believe in a small state, everything he's said that way. And actually, he's, I think Sunak is worried about the threat to the existing dominance of neoliberalism, the corporate capture of government, all of those issues. I think he is. I think he is an ideologue. But Johnson, no, he's just on the make, isn't he, basically? And in some ways, Johnson becomes a bit of a irrelevance in all of this. The real battle is with the diehard neoliberals like Rishi Sunak that we've got to take on and completely, we've got to change. We've got, we need a new paradigm. And I'm, to be honest, I'm looking to yours and Ash's generation to force this paradigm shift through. And I think we're, we're seeing that emerging already. The worry I've got about Wednesday Rishi Sunak has followed the traditional pattern of um, treasury, uh, PR, playbook, if you like, before a budget. You release some goodies, drip feed the goodies in the week before. Um, he's done more than any chance has done before. And he actually got reprimanded by the speaker for that today. Um, but anyway, he's drip fed these goodies. There'll then be um, a scene setting bit just before in the next 24 hours about how tough things are. And then he'll produce a few more rabbits out of the bag and try to argue that he's a serious he's a serious chancellor. And you'll find a fair amount of greenwashing that will be in the statements on Wednesday. But my big fear is that a lot of it is relatively trivial. It doesn't really address the main issue. And we're facing existential crisis of climate change. So I'm deeply worried that but the main challenge of tackling climate change, he won't tackle on the scale that's necessary. So that's the dangerous element of all this. Let's talk about the minimum wage. The government will make a big deal about the fact that this is is rising to £9.50. Obviously, there's been a big argument in the Labour Party recently about what number they should back. Keir Starmer saying it will be at least £10. That's presumably going to get caught up with quite quickly. Andy McDonald obviously saying it should be £15. Some people saying £15 is a bit of an arbitrary number. Where do you come down on this? What should Labour be calling for when it comes to the minimum wage? Let's just go through the history of it. Um, George Osborne said we were, he promised £9 last for this year. For tw- actually, for 2020, he promised it for. If Labour had been elected, we were going for straight for £10 by April 2020. And if that had been in place now, people's wages would have been about £2,500 higher. My view is it'll get to, you know, it'll get to 9.15. But that doesn't come in until April of next year, remember. And then by that time, the real living wage will have been revamped. and It'll still be below the real living wage by the looks of it. My view is the reality is uh, over the next period, we've got to move towards £15. We've got to lift people out of poverty. And the way that you do that is your way that you do it through negotiation, obviously, trade union negotiations out there in public and private sector, but also you set the minimum and you work towards it. And that's what we would have done. If we'd have been in government now, the £10 would have been in place already and we'd already be moving towards the £15 figure, at least by the next election, definitely. The issue for me, one one side of all this as well, I'm sure he's going to announce the lifting of the pay freeze in the public sector. The problem with that, he'll lift the pay freeze, but he won't give the local authorities and the other agencies the money to enable them to pay a decent wage. So what you're finding is that there'll be continuing disputes and the worst of those disputes will, uh, the hardest will be in the outsourced services, those ones that have been privatised. I've been on the picket line this week with PCS members, the Royal Parks. They've been outsourced to a company called Just Ask. And what they're, they're, they're just asking for you know, sick pay, holiday pay, just decent conditions, which we thought we'd won nearly half a century ago as basic rights. And what you'll find is those are the people that will be hardest hit by all of this and by the publicity stunt around lifting the pay freeze, which won't be a lift in the pay freeze. I've also been on picket lines with UCU, the College Lecturers Union. And just uh, let me just give them a plug. They're now balloting for industrial action, both on pay 
but also on pensions. It looks as though some university lecturers are facing a 30% cut in their pension as a result of what their employers are doing. And I didn't realize fully myself, even though I've been working with UCU, I've been turned around different colleges. The other issue is insecurity of employment. In some of the colleges I've been visited, 50% of the staff are on insecure employment contracts, you know, where they're time limited to two years or even less. So that whole issue around people's standard of living, quality of life, basic pay and pensions continues to be under serious threat. And they're the sort of issues now that we've got to address. And this budget seems to be not just the irrelevance to all of that, it actually, in some instances, makes it worse. I don't think we've spoken to you since Labour got its new shadow chancellor in the form of, of Rachel Reeves. How, how do you rate her her performance so far? What could she be doing better? And I suppose, what would you advise her to to, to sort of put forward as Labour's key message on, on Wednesday when she's up against Rishi Sunak? It's the advice I've been given to the whole of the, the front bench and the, and the Labour leadership is this. You need now, we've had this conversation before, but you need now to be setting out at least some vision depiction of the society you want to create. What are the basic principles of that society? What is the new paradigm, basically? You've got to basically have a full assault on neoliberalism, selfish individualism, corporate capture of government, and contrast that with the basic rights secured by collective action, right to a decent wage, right to a decent roof, the right to an education free at the point of need, just like the NHS is, all of those things secured by collective action and the role of the state to do that, and democratic government as against those governments controlled by the corporations. All of that, that sort of depiction of society needs to be developed in much more eloquent language than I'm using now, but that needs to be done. And then what you need to do is identify a number of key radical policies that become part of the core of your program that will achieve that vision of the society. I keep saying to them, if you if you don't do that soon, we're going to have a general election in 18 months, the spring of what, 2023. If you don't do that soon, you'll have what hit us in December 2019, which was we're trying to shave, shave the, uh, change the agenda from Brexit. So I'm throwing out policy after policy. We would normally would have been had another two years to argue those policies, but the election was brought on early because of Brexit. So I'm trying to throw out policy after policy. And if you do that, and you haven't had 12 months to bed those policies in, when they cumulatively put together, people just don't believe you. You lose credibility. And I keep saying to them, learn the lesson from that failure or weakness in December 2020, because you need this next 12 months at least to identify at least a number of those key policies, bed them in, rebut the criticisms of them, and then that way you can convince people because you can then translate it into people's real lives, what's happening in their community and how you can change their lives in that way. Without doing that, I think you put the next election at risk. So I'm hoping on Wednesday, it isn't just a critique of what the Tories do. We can all knock the hell out of the Tories on what their record is more about. Here's an alternative vision. Here's some of the policies that could transform people's lives. And, in, and I think that has to be done collectively from Keir Starmer right the way through the shadow cabinet. And it doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. So I wanted to ask you about what's going on outside of the Labour Party and within the wider Labour movement, because I hear what you're saying about workers being under attack, the assault on pensions and the uh, balloting by UCU members. But it also seems to me that as we sort of come out this side of the pandemic, there is an opportunity for organised labour. So, of course, you've got UCU balloting here, but you've got 10,000 John Deere workers out on strike in the US. There's something about the experience of the pandemic which has awakened these sections of organised labour in order to try and secure better pay, better pensions, better conditions, and also resisting the opportunism of some employers to use the pandemic as a means of imposing more precarious conditions uh, for new hires in particular. So the question I wanted to ask you is, what should the focus of the labour movement be at the moment? And for those people who are part of the left who maybe feel a bit disenchanted by the Labour Party at the moment, where do you think they should be organising? I want to just be very specific about what the issue is in this country at the moment for 
we go wider than that. I think in our history, if you look back on it, when the route to radical change has been temporarily closed off to us by way of an election defeat, what you'll often find is that workers do the completely rational thing. I think, well, if we haven't got a government that's going to help us secure a decent quality of life, we have to ensure that we use the other strength that we've got, which is trade union organisation. And that's exactly what's happening at the moment. And what's interesting in this country is that we've got a new unionism being built. It's almost like the 19th century. A new form of unionism is coming forward, which is basically throwing off some of the shackles that some of the large trade union bureaucracies imposed upon workers. And actually what you're finding is a lot of the smaller unions are fighting back hard under direct democratic member level control. But in addition to that, in unions like, for example, Unison, a left NEC has now been elected. They're in a battle with the bureaucracy to make sure the democratic mem- decisions of their members are implemented. But they're, they're, if you're a fraction of that new unionism where people have said, look, we've waited for a Labour government. It hasn't arrived. We've got to now think hard about how we use our strength industrially to make sure we have decent pay, protect our pensions and end the austerity onslaught that's continuing on. Different so you're finding people willing to take action now on a scale that we haven't seen for quite a while. And I, I spend half my life, well, I always have, I suppose, but I spend a good part of my life on picket lines, meeting and talking to people. And what they're saying to me is that whether it's the Uber drivers or whether it's UCU members on strike or, or whether it's the, the, those workers in social care that have been taking industrial action despite all their commitment they have to, their, to the, the people they look after, they've been forced into it. What they're saying is we've had enough. They've drawn a line in the sand and they're just saying we can't live like this anymore. We we can't allow this to be imposed upon our families anymore. So they're fighting back. The Royal Parks dispute is a classic example. They came out for a month strike. That's tough when you're on low wages, supported by a really strong member-led union. And I think that's what's happening. Interesting enough as well, I think if you look at what's happening in the States as well, Similar sort of thing, challenging corporate power. I'm encouraged by all of that, but I'm also encouraged. I just come back to this. I'm also encouraged by these disputes largely being led by young people who, some of whom may not have been in the trade union movement for very long, but they've brought a creativity to their campaigning and a real sense of determination. And actually, in many instances, they're winning. I'll give UCU as an example, you know, it's a classic. This at the beginning, down in Brighton, at the beginning of COVID, the university there, the college there, what does it do? It lays off most of their technical staff just as lecturing is going online. It was madness. There was a big dispute online, picket lines that I joined, etc. They won that dispute. People got reinstated. Same up in Liverpool. What do they do? They lay off health researchers in the middle of a COVID crisis. These are the very people researching these sort of conditions. We've just had a, a long dispute. Most of those jobs have now been saved. So people are winning in these disputes, and it's inspiring, giving confidence to others. John, I've, I've just got one audience question I want to put to you. It's from James Burns. Thank you for your super chat. Um, James says, just curious, but how did we get the £15 number? I trust John. We all do. But I think it would help our argument if we could explain why that is the minimum. I, well, I've not been involved in arriving at that figure. Others have within the Labour and Trade Union movement had that discussion. But I think what they've been aiming for is looking at the median wage and how they can go go above that and advance the future. But it's interesting, when, when people have raised the £15 with me, it's always on the basis of moving towards it. So people are realistic about it. They want to negotiate. And just as we did with the £10 an hour, we set a timetable to, to how we can achieve it. And I think people are not unrealistic about this, but I think also people are just saying that we've, we've, we can't go on with its levels of poverty and insecurity the way we have, and we've got to have a plan to resolve that. And part of that plan has to be a wage we, upon which people can live, live on. And I think that's what the, the discussions that took place amongst the individual trade unionists that came up with that. It originally started, if you remember, in the Max Strike campaign, um, I was on the picket lines and demonstrations with the the young people in, in the McDonald's strike. And, and with Keir Starmer. Uh, with Keir Starmer, yes. 
famous, famously photographed and interviewed. The fight, the fight for fifteen started in America with the, you know, fifteen dollars and all the rest of it, and it got sort of picked up in the McDonald's strike. But then others were looking at how do you get towards getting much nearer that average and stroke or mean wage overall, but how you do it over time. So, I, I think, interesting enough, I've been looking at some of the disputes that we've got. Um, like I think it's the sage dispute on the care workers. They're negotiating around £12 an hour at the moment. Well, that would be a big step up for them, and it would be on the path to something much more effective. We can't, we can't stand by and let people be you know, employed on poverty wages anymore. We, as I say, I think this new unionism, which is unions themselves being so strongly motivated um, by their rank-and-file members and greater levels of democracy breaking out to ensure that those unions now actually fight for their members and properly represent them. John McDonnell, always an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your insight today. We'll, we'll speak soon. Next story. Earlier this month, an interview between Nick Robinson and Boris Johnson got heated when in response to the Prime Minister's rambling and evasive answers, the Today host told him to stop talking. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no supply of young people in this country who, frankly, at the moment, are thinking of becoming truck drivers. You now, have that is, made that, that point is going very to, clearly, that and is I'm going to, to that is going to change. Prime Minister, that you is are going to change, and and, Prime Minister, and it's going to be a good thing. Stop talking. We are going to have questions and answers, not where you merely talk, if you wouldn't mind. Now, well, the question I now want to ask you to is about. It has long been Boris Johnson's strategy to avoid scrutiny by changing the subject or coming down with a sudden bout of verbal diarrhoea. So I thought that was an effective technique by, by Nick Robinson to get him to answer the actual question. Not everyone was pleased, though. And that includes the new culture secretary, Nadine Doris. She is overseeing negotiations over the future of the licence fees. That's how the BBC gets its money. And according to the Sunday Times, she has told allies that, quote, Nick Robinson has cost the BBC a lot of money. A BBC insider has hit back, telling the Times the following. This is a new Secretary of State who perhaps hasn't realised that the constitutional independence of the BBC means that even at a time, in fact, especially at a time when the licence fee is being negotiated, it is not the job of party politicians to act like a judge on strictly giving marks for the quality of interviews. Ash, it's, it's pretty worrying, isn't it? We've got a culture secretary now that's threatening to cut funding to the BBC because of a tough interview, a tough interview for, for her prime minister. What this speaks to is the institutional weakness of the BBC. It is hamstrung in being able to defend itself adequately. Because of that vulnerability around the negotiation of the licence fee, the political power that governments of the day have in doing things like scrapping a free TV licence uh, for pensioners, and also um, when it comes to charter renewal, you've seen marketization creep in as uh, the BBC gets has a weaker negotiating position with each ongoing charter renewal. So that's why I think, you know, if you want to see a BBC which is able to stand up for itself, hold politicians' feet to the fire and be truly constitutionally independent, you would have to establish it on a permanent statutory footing. And that is simply not something that's going to happen because each government of the day rather likes having a hobbled BBC, uh, which you can, you know, threaten and throw your weight around when they ask too many difficult questions. But within the BBC itself, I think that there is also a culture problem. There is a culture of deference, of playing by the Westminster rules when it comes to interviewing politicians. So even when you do have a moment like Nick Robinson, I think, still being perfectly courteous and polite, but being assertive and cutting through the bluster of Boris Johnson so that he, the interviewer, can do his job properly, you don't have a tremendous amount of support coming from within the BBC itself. And I'll give you an example of this. Just uh, on Sunday, yesterday morning, I was on Radio 4 Broadcasting House and it was me, Tim Walker, Jeffrey Archer, and the host was Justin Rowland. And this conversation came up. And every single person in this discussion, in one way or another, said, I think Nick Robinson went too far in saying, Prime Minister, stop talking. What he should have done is, you know, very decorously, you know, try to say, now, if you wouldn't mind possibly waiting a moment, blah, 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 blah. And for me, what this revealed is a fundamental lack of understanding of what's going on with political communications at the moment. Boris Johnson 
really does follow in the tradition of somebody like Silvio Berlusconi, or indeed some aspects of Donald Trump, where the job is not to communicate clearly to the public things that the public need to hear. It's about creating so much noise, just being essentially a white noise machine, able to befuddle and confuse the audience. You don't really know what you're listening to, muddy the waters, and that's how you get through the interview. So it's not really about serving uh, the public's needs. It's about evading those needs in such a way which means that you don't also drop a clangor. Now, when you're faced with a politician who has that as part of their core communication strategy, I think the only way as an interviewer, you can get a grip on the thing, is to be incredibly assertive, is to say, Prime Minister, stop talking, I need to ask you a question. Even have a little water pistol, you know, by your side, give him a little square in the face if he's rambling on too long, because otherwise you're not going to be able to do your job. And by playing by these kind of old, very hands-off, very kid gloves rule, you're not ultimately going to be able to do your job, which is hold politicians to the to account in a public forum. And the BBC are going to be, you know, under, I think this is basically the government throwing its weight around. We know the BBC is likely to be appointing a new political editor soon as Laura Koonsberg stands down. And of course, the, the whole point of that story in the Sunday Times is that the license fee is now being negotiated, which is, you know, that's literally where the BBC gets its money from. So this is dangling a Damocles, Damoclesian sword um, over the public broadcaster to, to try and get them into line so that they... I mean, we often talk about BBC bias, right? They're incredibly biased against Jeremy Corbyn because he wasn't an establishment politician. The Conservatives still don't think it is obsequious enough. Um, let's go to our next story. But first, if you're a donor to Navarra Media, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. If not, please do go to navarramedia.com slash support. We ask for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. Um, that is... That's, that's exactly what keeps this organization going. We really do appreciate it. Thanks to his frequent cringe-inducing gaffes, Richard Maidley is often compared to Steve Coogan's fictional TV host, Alan Partridge. An interview he conducted with Keir Starmer was no exception. Here, Maidley grills the Labour leader about reports he's sidelined Angela Rayner. It was reported in several Sunday newspapers yesterday uh, from well-placed sources that you are now sidelining Angela Rayner, your deputy, because of her comments about Tory scum, that, that you found those embarrassing, and obviously in the light of the terrible events that happened two Fridays ago, um, incredibly poorly timed, and that you're actually keeping her out of sight um, and bringing other people no, forward. Is that true? that's not true. Uh, every Sunday I get all of the newspapers <laughs> and I faithfully go through them and read lots of things that are apparently happening that bear no relation uh, to the truth. So she's, um, she's still your, your best girl, is she? Well, look, um, what I would say in all seriousness is that um, Angela Rayner's had a bereavement of a very, very close person to her, mm -hmm. as someone that she treated more or less as her mother. And um, so she's had a very bad and hard Sorry week last week, and, and she's got a funeral coming up in relation to that. So her absence is actually to do with that bereavement rather than anything else. But as I say, I enjoy reading this, the papers and, and, and hearing right. all sorts of stories that bear no relation to the truth. She's still your best girl, is she? About Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of, of the Labour Party. Have you ever heard someone ask Boris Johnson if Michael Gove or Dominic Raab is his best boy? It's, well, I'd say it's completely bizarre. It's also, of course, incredibly sexist. It also seems odd to me to accuse Angela Rayner of bad timing in her scum comments. The implication is to relate those comments to the tragic death of, of David Amos, but Angela Rayner isn't, isn't clairvoyant. She didn't know what events would unfold in the weeks after she made that speech, and more importantly, absolutely no one who is remotely intelligent has suggested that David Amos's killer was inspired by Angela Rayner complaining about the Tories cutting benefits. There's no relation between these two events. They have nothing to do with each other, and it just seems quite slanderous to be connecting them. The next part of the interview is, is even more farcical. Remember, the reason Angela Rayner is under fire is because she said the Tories were scum. It was an uncivil way to talk about her opponents. Now pay attention to how Maidley, in the next breath, spoke about the Labour left. What about an exclusion zone for the hard left on your party? Some of the criticism you got after conference a couple of weeks ago was that you basically didn't seize the opportunity to give them a good kicking and to make it absolutely clear that the days of, of the Corbynistas, as we might call them, is well and truly over. 
Well, look, I had the first few days of conference, everybody saying, why on earth is he taking these rule changes to change his party? Surely uh, this is not the time, um, etc. We had massive rule changes in relation to the leadership of the Labour Party, in relation to reselection of MPs and anti-Semitism, made a huge difference. And everybody that was criticising me on the way in saying, why are you doing this? Um, Recognised that we changed the party for the better on that Sunday in conference. And then I followed up with my conference speech and, and... Anybody who saw that, and I realise not everybody did, will have seen um, that there were a few hecklers, but actually the vast majority of people in the room, vast majority of members, actually did my job for me, which was to shut the hecklers up. And the the slogan I used, the the pushdown I used, was to say, you know, chanting slogans or changing lives. And that's Mm. the choice the Labour Party has to make. We we can sit on the sidelines protesting, or we can be fit for government and go into government. And the second is the choice we have to make. So in case the rules weren't already clear to you, civility politics, to be civil in British political discourse, means you can never call the Tories scum, but you can call for the left to get a good kicking. We've got one more update from the civility in politics gang, and it's from the same article in the Mail on Sunday that Maidley was referring to there. They write the following. The move to sideline Rayner comes amid claims that the party's right is making coordinated efforts to push Sir Keir into their camp and banish the unelectable left. Sources say right-winger Wes Streeting told a shadow cabinet meeting, every day we should drag a sacred cow of our party to the town marketplace and slaughter it until we are up to our knees in blood. Bizarre metaphor. This is the problem with civility politics, isn't it? When it comes to talking about centrist establishment politicians, we're all expected to wear kid gloves. When it comes to the left or socialists, anything goes. I want to talk about the civility politics in just one moment, but perhaps I'd like to draw your attention to something, which is the look on Keir Starmer's face when Richard Madley was saying, you missed your opportunity to give the left a good kick in. He was like, no, I really did. Three bags full, sir. I really kicked the shit out of them. There was this element, which I've never really seen so nakedly in Keir Starmer before, of ego and of feeling quite pleased when he's able to demonstrate what I think is quite limited, perhaps even toxic model of masculinity where you feel like a big man through your put downs and your ability to dominate other people. And when it's sort of wrapped up in this kind of, you know, hierarchical bullying kind of persona. Now, there's something quite pathetic in that as well. I don't think anyone looks at Keir Starmer and go, you son, you're the man to take on Tyson Fury in Las Vegas. There's something kind of pathetic in that hint of ego. It's the person who wants to suck up to the even bigger bully by talking about how they flushed somebody's head down the toilet just last week, except you wouldn't know them because they moved to a different school. And I think there's something in there, which I found, if I'm honest, quite nauseating, just something in that little flash of the facial expression and the nature of the response. But you're perfectly right to highlight the inerrant hypocrisy of the civility conversation, which is on the one hand, you can draw this totally uh, fictitious connection between Angela Rayner and the brutal murderer of David Amos, we've got absolutely no evidence that the murderer of David Amos uh, was an anonymous troll on Twitter. That's, of course, been another big conversation. No evidence that he's a big supporter of Angela Rayner or particularly, uh, you know, influenced by her. And yet what this has done, this tragic and brutal murder, which has to be, I think, investigated and looked at on its own terms, is now served as a pretext for political purposes, where people can essentially dress up their own feeling of coming under fire, which is the nature of oppositional politics, and saying this is practically akin to attempted murder. There's something, I think, incredibly cynical about that and what's going on. And then you've got this third element, which is the way in which talking about the left is suffused by the language of violence, give them a good kicking, bury them in a tomb, uh, you know, this stuff about, you know, slaying the sacred cow of the party until you're up to your knees in blood. Well, if you want to look at targets of political violence over the last, you know, five years, you've had Joe Cox, who was murdered by a far right 
activist because she was seen as too left-wing and too kind to refugees and, you know, too accepting of migrants. You've also had the, you know, attack on Owen Jones on his birthday. I've also been with Owen when we've both been chased around by the far right looking to, in Richard Madley's words, give us a good kicking. Uh, and thinking about the abuse that I've suffered, where some of them have been very credible threats of violence. Now, it's one thing for the far right to entertain some of those violent and bloodthirsty fantasies, but it's quite another to hear it coming from people who are seen as the custodians of respectable and sensible opinion. Now, I would go as far to say that, you know, this isn't really a double standard in politics. This is just the one standard, which is, Cozy up to the far right if it means, you know, kind of getting the left uh, out of any any proximity to power and do whatever you can to delegitimize monster and indeed endanger the left, because ultimately they're going to be more of a threat to your interests uh, than the far right ever will. Because there are plenty of people, I think, within the Labour Party who are more concerned with their own jobs, maintaining them within the party than they are winning an election with the party under a left-wing leadership. And I think that that's all there is to it. Beyond the hypocrisy, another thing to mention is just how bad an electoral strategy this is. You know, the Labour Party, you're thinking that there's a cost of living crisis. Universal credit has been cut by, by £20. We're in the middle of a climate crisis. And what Wes Streeting, who, by the way, is, is the right's candidate to replace Keir Starmer, now they're all egging for him, he thinks that Labour's priority should be going to drag sacred cows of our party to the town marketplace and slaughter them until we're up to our knees in blood. No one cares. That was the other problem with that interview with Keir Starmer. He's like, should you give the left a good kicking? And Keir's like, well, actually, I did give them a bit of a kicking. It's sort of like, why don't you say, I'm not sure your audience actually really care about the internal party politics of the Labour Party. And what I'm here to talk about is the cost of living crisis, is the, the hike to national insurance, is the fact that Loads of people are going to be poorer because of the £20 cut to, to universal credit. There's, there's no message discipline because they don't believe in anything other than, than bashing the left. And I'm sorry, but look at the kind of moral leadership you see from somebody like Marcus Rashford, right? He's a footballer. He's a young guy. Standing up for the poor and the dispossessed is not his job, right? That's not his job. And yet he has got this laser-like focus on the issue that he wants to talk about all the time. He doesn't seem like somebody who's caught up in, you know, such petty rivalries. And he is a footballer. Petty rivalries is literally his job. Um, I think there's something which is so unstrategic about the way in which, you know, Keir Starmer and, you know, Wes Streeting and all the rest of them have essentially gone, you know, panting over this, you know, imitation carrot of, you know, oh, you'll get some approval if you're seen to be punching left. Well, look, you might have Richard Madley rolling about at your feet and you might have Nick Robinson patting you on the head and going, what a good job you're doing. But ultimately, when it comes to the ballot box, what are the voters going to remember? Is it going to be that, you know, you sufficiently, you know, denigrated Jeremy Corbyn and pissed all over his legacy and, you know, betrayed the left in your own party? Or is it going to be Boris Johnson who comes out and says, I will literally shit money in your constituency if you need me to? It's going to be the latter because as duplicitous and as, you know, limited as Boris Johnson is, at least he's saying something which is speaking to what people care about. You know, he's not going, I hate the same people as you do. I hate Jeremy Corbyn just as much as you do. Um, because he knows that that doesn't speak to people. And one thing that I'll say is a point of comparison, because I'm not saying that it's not useful to refashion the party in your own image as a political leader. Boris Johnson did that very successfully when he removed the whip from over 20 MPs, uh, you know, for, for rebelling against his Brexit deal. What that showed was clarity of purpose, but it was in service of a policy. It was in service of a policy and saying, I'm going to refashion this as a Brexit party, as a vote leave government, and here I am proving it to you. Here, Starmer and West Street, and all they're doing is going, yeah, we think our party's full of shits too. And that's about it. It's not in service of a policy. It's certainly not in service of, I think, a broader strategic orientation. It's just trying to prove how sensible you are for an audience of people who are never going to vote for you. Next story. If you've been on social media this weekend, you might have seen a lot of people talking about sewage. 
That's because last week Tory MPs voted against an amendment to the Environment Bill that would see water companies held responsible for waste discharged into Britain's rivers and seas. The story was first reported by Evolve Politics and it also made it to the Mail on Sunday. The backlash apparently has Tory MPs spooked. Jim Picard at the Financial Times tweeted the following... There's a lingering disquiet about Tory MPs voting last week against an amendment to stop private water companies dumping raw sewage into rivers and coastlines. Not sure they've gauged the public mood. So what's this row all about? Well, to understand the controversy, you first need to become familiar with something called Combined Sewer Overflows, or CSOs. To that end, this is part of a Channel 4 News report on CSOs from a couple of years ago. This down here is a CSO, a combined sewer overflow. The vast majority of the time, they're meant to be doing this, nothing. But when a serious amount of rain comes down, then they act as an emergency pressure release, stopping the sewers getting too full and backing up. But in some places, CSOs are being used a lot, releasing into the rivers, a mix of rainwater and untreated sewage. That's condoms, sanitary towels, wet wipes, and human waste. You've been doing this for a long time. Over 30 years, I've spent half my life in that river. Yeah. Mark Barrow is an underwater cameraman. Just round here, there's been freshwater mussel beds. They've now gone. Last year, he learned in a fairly unpleasant way what was being released into the River Wharf in West Yorkshire. The river was low, it was clear, and then I hit this wall of what I assumed was silt. Um, and it wasn't until I surfaced that I realised the CSO was discharging. So you get out of the water and you literally have... Yes. Everything. Yeah. Everything you can imagine was stuck to me. So to summarise, the reason that that diver ended up covered in shit was because wastewater from our homes goes into the same sewers as rainwater. If it rains heavily, those sewers will begin to fill up and there's a danger that human waste will start coming out of drains in the street. To avoid that unpleasant situation, when there is particularly wet weather, water companies are allowed to release sewage into rivers. That's to stop them overflowing somewhere else. That this needs to happen is in large part down to underinvestment in Britain's sewers and drains. Most of our sewers date from the Victorian era, and with a rising population, they desperately need to be upgraded. Fixing this was the motivation of the Duke of Wellington's amendment to the Environment Bill, which would force water companies to make improvements to their systems, so dumping in rivers would no longer be needed. This is from the Parliament's website. It explains what was being proposed in the amendment. The Duke of Wellington's Elements of Lords Amendment 45 would place a new duty on sewerage undertakers in England and Wales to make improvements to their sewerage systems and demonstrate progressive reductions in the harm caused by discharges of untreated sewage. It would also require the Secretary of State, the Director of OFWAT, that's the Economic Regulator, and the Environment Agency to ensure compliance with the duty through the exercise of their respective functions. That all sounds fairly reasonable. It was passed in the House of Lords. However, when the amendment got to the Commons, the Tories whipped against it and it was defeated. Hence the outrage. So what were the government thinking? In response to letters from his angry constituents, Tory Minister Robert Courts explained that while he backed the measure in principle, the Duke's amendment came with no plan as to how this can be delivered and no impact assessment whatsoever. In eliminating storm overflows, we are talking about transforming a system which has operated since the Victorian era, the preliminary cost of which is estimated to be anywhere between £150 billion and £650 billion. He goes on, to put those figures in perspective, £150 billion is more than the entire school's policing and defence budgets put together, and £650 billion is well above what has been spent combating the coronavirus pandemic. The government's view was that it would have been irresponsible to have inserted this section in the bill, given that it was not backed by a detailed plan and thorough impact assessment. It would have been the equivalent of signing a blank cheque on behalf of bill payers. There are a couple of things to say in, in response to that comment from the Tory minister. The first is that while obviously I am no expert in, in how much 
the regeneration of, of sewage um, costs. It is not the case that I, I think all of this money would have to be paid up front. As we saw in, in that amendment, it was to say, you know, companies will have to bring about some improvements to their to their systems. The second point, and I think this is is more important, is that I wouldn't trust a Tory when they say that any new costs imposed on water companies would need to be passed on to bill payers. It's the shareholders who should be shouldering that cost. Indeed, if Robert Coots is genuinely so concerned about signing blank checks, perhaps he could ask his government how privatised water companies have been able to pay out £56 billion to their shareholders. That profit has been made without investors taking any risks. It's not going to be the case that people are going to stop buying water, and it has not come as a reward for good service. In fact, a comparison between water bills in England, where water is privatised, and Scotland, where it isn't, shows that state-run water companies give more value to consumers. What's more, despite protestations to the contrary by arch-neoliberals, privatisation has not improved practices in the sector. To take just one example, only last year, the private company Southern Water was fined a record £90 million for deliberately dumping sewage in protected coasts. Southern Water were found to have engaged in, I quote, very serious widespread criminality, which was known about at the highest level. It's also important to note that while £90 million might sound like a large fine, you might think, well, at least justice was done. According to Ofwat, that's the regulator, it's a lower sum than what the company saved by illegally dumping sewage on Britain's coast. Ash, lots of people are very upset about this amendment not passing. It does feel like the water companies and, and the Tory party are taking us all for a ride. Yeah, it does. Because what, I think that this is one of those, you know, nonpartisan issues, which is nobody likes shit in their <laughs> local nature spot. All right. I don't care if you voted for UKIP or the Greens, if you're Leave or Remain. If you say to somebody, look, next time you walk your dog through that you know, lovely bit of forest and there's the river running by and you look over and you just see a rat floating on a sanitary pad. Does that sound good to you? Everybody is going to say no. All right. Everyone's going to say no for, for a good reason, which is we, it's disgusting. We think it's disgusting. And, and, and we, and we want to be able to both have, you know, quality infrastructure. We don't have shit running down city streets and, you know, well looked after nature. So I think that all of this guff about, you know, it being too expensive to, you know, reconstruct and, uh, you know, upgrade those Victorian era sewers. Well, what's the point of having privatized the water system if companies aren't going to take responsibility for it? And if it's not going to be uh, the responsibility of private water companies, be that Thames Water or Southern Water or whoever else it is, well, we should just take it into public ownership and it should be the state's responsibility. Whereas at the moment, we've got the worst of all worlds. We've got privatized water and we've also got private water companies being able to run a mark and pump raw sewage and other disgusting messes into the sea and into freshwater. When we're thinking quite seriously about how we want to uh, rewild non-built-up areas and doing that because you know it's better for the environment, it helps you know take carbon out of the atmosphere, you know pumping shit all over the place isn't how you do it yeah i mean re rewilding shouldn't involve rats floating on sanitary pads um, and i think it's gonna be quite difficult for any of the parties to own this you know who, who wants to be the you know your dog coming back with an old nappy instead of their tennis ball all kind of gross we've got a couple of great super chats on this shiny warm with a fiver says my mp who is david tc davis responded to a constituent's polite tweet on this by accusing her of spreading hatred in this of all weeks Shame on you. Oh, this is the tweet from David T.C. Davies. This is a, the Tory politician. They said, we voted to reduce sewage going into rivers, but we can't risk it backing up into people's homes. The facts were set out, but activists like you are more interested in spreading hatred on Twitter than looking at the arguments in this of all weeks. Shame on you. So that was David T.C. Davies. Well, he should watch this segment because I think we've put forward a fair few arguments as to why we shouldn't just have this, uh, this, this idea where there's this, this mutual mutually exclusive trade-off where we either have shit in our living rooms or shit in our rivers. Maybe we could 
uh, take some money off off the shareholders and invest in some sewers that work. Um, and it is, sewers that work isn't a great political slogan either, but we're, we're getting there. Um, final story before we do that, we've got a lot more viewers than likes. Hit the like button; it helps us on the algorithm. The Tory government's response to a shortage of HGV drivers has so far been pretty underwhelming. At Tory party conference, Boris Johnson said it wasn't his job to sort out shortages on supermarket shelves. And the government's pledge to grant 5,000 emergency visas to lorry drivers has so far attracted only 20 successful applicants. Now, in a bid to save Christmas, the Tories have come up with a new plan, getting prisoners to work as lorry drivers. But as this viral TikTok video shows, there's a chance the plan could backfire. Prisoners could be part of the solution to the recent lorry driver shortage, according to the Justice Secretary. Go on. A radical plan was unveiled today where serving inmates will be recruited to drive trucks. Yeah, go on. It's seen as offering a second chance, but there are doubts. So Wait for it. Just how much it will actually help is our consumer editor, Chris Choi. Wait for it. Government's Justice Secretary, driven by a prisoner. Dominic Raab today highlighting a scheme where convicts are helping with the HGV crisis. Here we go. The wheel was Dean. He's on day release from jail working in haulage. His offence was importing drugs involving a lorry. <laughs> Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary, getting in a van, getting in a lorry, HGV truck. You thought the first thing that you ask your press guys, what was he done for? What was he in prison for? And, and is it going to make me look silly? And you, you got to, what were the people that they decided not to include, that they went for the guy who imported drugs with a HGV lorry? Well, I say that, I, we, we don't know he imported, I shouldn't go beyond what was said in, in, in that news report, but clearly it's, uh, it's awkward given the job that, Michael, that he's Michael, being Michael, given. Michael, you're coming at this all wrong. I'm sorry, I very rarely disagree with you on this show, right? If you're... The government PR person, you're right. Which prisoner do we find, right? Do we just find, you know, Mr. You know, credit card fraud? Or do you go for the guy with relevant job experience <laughs> in the area that you've just recruited him for, right? You're not thinking this through, mate. In seriousness, you know, letting prisoners work as long as you're paying them well. Isn't isn't that bad a policy? Should we should we actually be celebrating this, Ash? Well, I suppose for me the key question is: Are they paying them properly? We know that prisoners, in terms of prison jobs, aren't making the same kind of wage that they would outside. Um, don't think the minimum wage actually applies to prison labour. If we're just using prisoners as a hyper exploitable class of worker, I think that's pretty bad. Um, I'm not opposed to prisoners on day release having jobs. Um, I think that. Prisons should take rehabilitation and integration in society a lot more seriously than they do. Just simply locking people up, isolating them uh, is a nailed on way to have the sort of really high reoffending, uh, you know, recidivism rates that we do have in this country. So I'm not I'm not opposed to it as long as they're being treated as any other worker with the same rights and pay. No, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly um, endorse that. Thank you, Ash. It's been a pleasure as always. It's been the best part of my week, as always. Thank you, everyone, for your super chats. Thank you for everyone who is a regular donor. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.